Welcome to the Ethics Experts, where we're elevating ethics and compliance, and HR, to the strategic level it's supposed to be. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Ethics Experts. I am here with uh, Ricardo Pelefone, or Pelefone, if you're American. How you doing, Ricardo? Hey, how are you doing? Good, man. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I first met you on LinkedIn. I've been following you for several months. Um, I just love what you're doing for the community and like how much value you're kind of pushing out for the people that we're trying to serve and just thought it would, you know, I was excited to get you on and to kind of pick your brain, see how you got here and see how you kind of look at the world. So thanks, thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. And if you're listening and you're not connected with Nick on LinkedIn, uh, probably the best intro message I've ever gotten from someone, you attached <laughs> a video to it. And I, I, I said back, I was like, A-plus LinkedIn game, which was very sincere about it. So it blew my mind. I was like, whoa, this is, this is some next level, this is some next level uh, social media networking stuff. Well, thank so you. definitely connect with Nick if you're not already on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, that, that means a lot coming from you because, um, I don't know, I, I'm like pushing your profile to everyone on my team. Like, look, look, look what these guys are doing. Look how they're kind of adding. I love it. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, you, how you got to this game and how you, and what kind of problem you seek to solve with Broadcat. I guess yeah, awesome. a little bit about you. You're the CEO, founder of Broadcat, which is yes. a science learning company. I'm sure I'm bastardizing that, but you know, give us the, give us the <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, so, um, so my background, uh, I'm a lawyer by background. Uh, I don't practice anymore, but I started off as an attorney. Um, so I was a litigator as outside counsel. From there, I started getting into compliance through internal investigations. So a lot of people that I think go the outside counsel in-house route will have that kind of pattern. Like they're a litigator, they start getting into investigations, and then they went in-house. So um, I so I was doing like these like board-level investigations as outside lawyer as outside lawyer, and then um, one of our clients at the firm I was at was a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East, and so I went there for six months to help them set up part of their compliance program. It ended up being a permanent move, so I stayed there for about two and a half years. Oh wow! Um, so I was in Abu Dhabi for that, which is a super cool part of the world um, to go to go to. Working for one of their companies, which is super cool as well. Um, from there, I went back to the U.S. So I, I had a very similar role for a tech company in California, running their basically their hotline, their investigations. Um, and then I started Broadcat at, uh, about a little over five years ago, I guess now. And so the problem that I was seeing, and the problem that we saw with Broadcat, was that the way compliance, um, the way the way compliance programs uh, evolved, just kind of historically, you had the training and learning element of it almost in this parallel universe from like the investigations thing. And so I was an investigator, so I had you know very in, like, personal experience of like flying over the world to solve things and just being like, dude, I'm like a really bad way to solve problems. But I'm very expensive. Right. You know, if you're paying, if you're trying to pay an attorney jump on a plane, like same day, fly to Europe or whatever, and like take, and then like grab a big law partner to go along with you, you're gonna be out a lot of money before anything happens. Right. And often what I, what I realized was like, a lot of times people just didn't know like how the concepts applied to their specific job. And if they do know that, and so you see something and you're like, wow, I spent like a half million dollars in this investigation and I could have probably prevented it with like a checklist. And so that was just like, this is what to do. And so um, that was the stuff that I started making that led to Broadcat was like, okay, so no one was making these like super operational tools. There's a lot of people talking about concepts like corruption and privacy and whatever, but um, no one was saying like, here's what it means for you, salesperson or finance person. And so we started doing that. Um, we were very fortunate very early on that we got like, like, like literally the first week I quit my job just to like do it full time. We got just like a one-line mention in the Wall Street Journal. And then from there, we got Walmart as a customer. And wow. then we were just like off. Uh -huh. And so now, years later, we're largely a licensing business now. Um, so what we do is try and touch any part we are trying to make compliance more human or, or easier to understand or simpler for an employee. So often that's training and communications, but it touches some other buckets as well. So if you do follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see me talk a lot about like hotlines and codes um, just as an other ways to think about how do we design these things that are more just human and more friendly for the, the employees so that they might be more useful to them. Yeah. And it's this kind of this interesting, it's this interesting problem. Like it's just interesting that the problem even exists in a way um, yeah. because you have all these smart people in these departments and yet these sort of silos erect between them or something like, what do you think this, like you're solving a real problem, but what do you think the root of that problem is? 
Yeah, so I think we hit on is the agency problem here is so that you have just, and so I think a lot about like incentives and interests for people. And one of the challenges in a big organization is that, so you're big enough to have this problem of compliance and you're also big enough, and by definition, that also means that like people are siloed off because that's how you organize labor in a large organization. You have people who are good at HR and people who are good at legal and blah, blah, blah. And so when I talk, when we think about who we serve as, as a company, we really think of it in terms of scale. So I will tell you, we generally are gonna serve very, very large organizations or smaller ones that are extremely high risk because of what they do. Okay. But what they all share, what we learned was that um, if you talk to, I think, if you, you pulled a couple of different people, I think what you by and large hear is that people think compliance is really industry specific. There is some truth to that if you're think, talking about healthcare and financial services. Outside of those two areas though, um, the issue is really more scale. So like HR people at a very, like an organization with 10,000 people um, in oil and gas will do something almost identical to HR people at an organization with 10,000 employees in high tech um, because they're HR professionals, they're specialized in that. Same is true for lawyers and accountants and so on and so on. And so what we realized was that the need is not so much to try and reinvent the wheel for each industry, but to really focus on what those people do day to day um, and that's just, I mean, part of the reason that problem exists is like, one, that's just stupid hard to do. Like, right. it's just very genuinely hard when you have this very specialized training. And a lot of us in compliance have my background. We're attorneys. And you go to law school, you have that beat into you, and you forget that it had to be beat, like beat into you. And right. so what you eventually try and do is try and make everyone think like you instead of try and learn how they think and adapt it to their world. Uh, which is far more effective and more empathetic when you take the latter approach. But it's just genuinely hard. And it does take a big revelation to realize that the way you think is unique to the way that you were trained. And that is a specialized way. If you're an attorney, that is an artificial and specialized way that we are trained that, and everyone else is trained differently. And so moving to their world is just hard. Yeah. And it, you know, you get such sort of, for lack of a better term, like muscle memory and thinking that way when you go down that legal path, you can yep. kind of lose sight to your point of how other people think or don't think that way. It's kind of like uh, if you're like a, a downhill professional skier, it might yep. be hard to teach somebody on the bunny slopes to do the pizza, you know, the pizza thing because <laughs> like it's been so long since you haven't, you know, since you haven't had your sea legs on the slopes, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so one of the skills, so to give an example, one of the skills you have as an attorney is issue spotting. That is like one of the things you are uniquely trained to do is that you're able to look at a fact pattern and say, that's the issue. Like that's, that's, that is how, when they, people talk about thinking like a lawyer, that is one of the core components of it. That is a skill set that is not entirely unique to, to law, but like largely unique to it. And that's okay because like we need people to do other jobs. That's why lawyers tend to be really bad when they try and like moonlight and other things too. Cause like they're just, they're different. They're not, not one's not good or worse. They're just very, very different. Um, so one of the areas where you can go wrong as an attorney is moving into a compliance role is like forgetting that you had to learn that and other people don't need to learn that. So your salespeople don't need to be compliance professionals. They need to do sales compliantly. And they, have a, they also are good at issue spotting, but it's a very different type where they're, they're, they're sniffing at deals and listening for commercial terms and objections. Um, so you can try and like teach them like these are the elements of a bribe and these anti-corruption frameworks, or you can put it directly in their context. So you just adapt it to what they already know. The latter is, is a little bit harder because like you actually like probably a lot harder because you know, you know, anti-corruption, you've mastered it as the attorney. You also now need to go and sit with them and really understand well, what do you do day to day? And then just tell them the parts that are relevant to them. It's, it's some of it is just kind of like the classic problem of teaching where it's very, it's much easier, especially if you're an expert in an area, to try and make people like you than tell them what they need to know. The latter requires a lot more empathy. Yeah, and this this thing of, of, of issue spotting that I think lawyers are super adept at, right, when they're reading a contract or thinking about a deal or whatever, yep. there's some picture of that in other fields, whether you're a mechanic totally. or whatever. So I think part of the challenge, if I'm kind of staying with you and what you're, what you're explaining, is part of the challenge is figuring out how to put this information in the context of that specific role so that you can tap into that natural, you know, issue yes. spotting that is already in them. Yes. And I think often we often what you see people do in training is just kind of stop after saying after the, 
stop after the point where they would train like a compliance professional. So they would say, okay, so someone's brought this fact pattern to you, like, okay, what, what are the elements of a bribe? How do you apply it here? But if you're talking to like, let's use again, use using sales as an example, um, it's much easier for the salesperson and for the organization holistically, if the compliance person then goes through and say, okay, so what does the salesperson do? What are the points in their workflow where they're likely to see an issue? What are they looking for there? And how can I provide them with that information at that point in time? So and our work looks often a lot like checklists and flowcharts that are like, use this when this happens. Right. Um, and so what it does is effectively take compliance training and, and learning and communications or whatever from this like transactional kind of like course based thing into like just business ops. So if you if we're doing our job really well, the business people should not think they get compliance training. It'll look like that to the government, but they will think that this is just like job training. And that that's the that I think that's the apex implementation of this stuff. Yeah, right. So you check, you know, quote unquote, check, check that box from the government perspective, but it's actually effective on the individual uh, perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, so I, I always think it's funny too, when people talk about like checking like the documentation box for the government, because like you get, it's very easy to get those things backwards. And then mm -hmm. so like, well, we want to like check the box first and then go do the stuff that we think works. So sometimes that's legitimately what sure. you have to do because like you are, you have a specific requirement to do something. And you're like, this is dumb. Right. People in healthcare had to struggle with that stuff for like a long time where they like couldn't use like they'd use like the specific slides from like CMS and they were awful. Right. Um, but even that's kind of changed. But there, there are still elements where it's like the insurance companies making us do that, whatever. That's one thing. Another thing is when you say, you know, we just want to generate a lot of records because that's what the government's going to want to look at. And then, you know, once we get that done, we'll try and figure out what works. Well, the point is to document the stuff that you think works in the first place, because then you're, then you're also, you're doing the same thing of like documenting things for purposes of the government, but you're just cutting the chase of what you think might work. And then you're not creating this terrible brand for compliance at your company, that compliance is more about theater, that it's about appearance over substance. And so I think when people start with the mentality of, we just need to generate a lot of records for purposes of satisfying the government, then we'll do what works. Um, they hamstring themselves later on. And they, I think when you then sit with the government, you still have to be able to explain like why you thought that was a good idea. And if it's like, well, we thought you guys would, would want to see it, that's not the best reason in the world. So I, I, when people talk about that, I always find that it's very easy for that to go sideways, especially if you're an attorney. Yeah, that's a great point. And again, the government's not placing these, uh, you know, these requirements on you just so that you jump through hoops. At yeah. some point, somebody thought that was going to be an effective thing. So to your point, what are we solving for? Are we solving for the letter of the law or the spirit of the law? And how can we kill two birds with one stone yeah. while defeating or at least trying to attack this brand problem that a lot of compliance departments have? Yeah. And I think, too, so if you think about it, so this is another area where I talk about, like, this in the context of, like, where lawyers can go wrong because that's my background. So, like, right. I also can, like, see those things. So one of the challenges that you can have as an attorney in this field in particular is like trying to like bifurcate what the problem is. So like as an attorney, you're like, there's legal risk and there's like risk to the organization. If you're a litigator by background, um, risk assessment can be tough for you because your job when you counsel on a client is basically to totally eliminate risk as much as absolutely possible. And so that's not possible when you're talking about true holistic risk, like operational risk, right. like there's always something. And so the legal component of it is really about liability. And so where you can go sideways is that you focus so much on like, how are we going to avoid liability for this? That like the other part of it is like, how do we reduce the likelihood of it happening? And that's the, that's the more critical goal. Cause if it doesn't happen in the first place, then you don't have to worry about liability. And so it's very, it's the liability one feels easier, right? So you're like, oh, okay. So the, the analogy that we like to use on this is like fire safety. So like um, the legal approach to compliance is like, let's go get insurance for the building, but like, which is good. You should definitely do that. You should also put in like safety practices so it doesn't burn down in the first place. Right. That's what the compliance team does. And so there's heavy overlap between those two, just like you'll have some safety practices for fire safety that you have to do for insurance purposes. But okay. they're separate goals. So it is, if the building burns down, we're okay. But also the building should not burn down in the first place. So those are two things to keep focused on. As an attorney, we're almost, we're trained to focus on the, on the liability one first. And so that, that's where it can be really challenging for us to move to the other one because it's just a new thing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know, how do I, how do I put this? It's an interesting problem 
that it, it's it, it's interesting that the problem exists and it's also interesting yeah. that like you're bringing some uh visibility to it and kind of some dimensionality to it that allows us to really kind of assess what the source of these these points of friction are i mean they're really it's re we're really talking about a lens a lens against risk and is it even viable to eliminate risk obviously not because people are driving in the cars there's some risk in that yeah. um and how do we sort of manage it and, and put preventative things in place so that these things don't ever even pop off and we don't have to trigger that yeah. um, that policy or whatever yeah totally and just it's i think it, the key is just like remembering that both of those are ends so like you don't want like again using the fire thing because it just makes it palpable like you do want to have insurance for your house but like you also don't want your house to burn down and those are separate things and there is one of the interesting things that happens with the way people behave too is that if you overemphasize the liability avoidance thing like the insurance or whatever um uh, the likelihood of people taking risky behaviors increases that's the concept of moral hazard so like you know if you're on a road and there's no uh, there's no lane markers on it people drive more carefully than if there are lane markers on it and so when you, the, one of the perverse things that happens in just how we behave as, as humans is that when you do have that liability protection in place, people take more risks. Um, and there's some social good to that. And that's why we have concepts like insurance and bankruptcy. But like, it also means that like, if you only emphasize the liability avoidance part of your compliance program, you may be inadvertently increasing the likelihood something happens. And just like having it happen is stupid, expensive and problematic for the company. Like, even if you have no ultimate finding of liability, you can be out tens of million dollars in an outside counsel investigation. And that's enormously disruptive to the business and it can go to the board level and be just a train wreck to deal with. So avoiding in the first place is always the goal. Documenting what you're doing is what then triggers the liability avoidance. You kind of have to keep the goals in that order. Right, right. Because um, the second one is sort of a function of the first one those behaviors yeah. are going to increase or decrease the likelihood of that thing getting triggered or, or occurring. Totally. totally. So I think it's very interesting. Um, for lack of a better term, I'm going to kind of call this in innovation, right? You're somebody from the legal background. You saw some of these issues. You saw that this training wasn't human and we're kind of in a knowledge work economy now, right? Where you're working yeah. you and all that other stuff. Um, what do you think that is in you that allowed you to see that? Was it just your experience in doing the investigations and looking at these hmm. bills or what? Like, like why hasn't somebody else like had this light bulb turn on and start yeah. shining that light into the darkness, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think, I mean, there's other people doing similar work that in the broader legal design space in terms of like, how do we make the law more accessible and human, including in the compliance space too. I think what made our stuff different and i think what makes our stuff unique is number one that we're way more into products than services as a company so the standardization piece of it some of that comes from the investigations background of like okay i have had to sit down with accounts payable people and so this is what they do and i can kind of map that stuff out okay um i think something that kind of drove me to want to fix it though was like i also think i'm like a really anxious person and so like I really hate it when I'm like, what am I supposed to do? You know, like one of the favorite places I've been is Seoul. So like everything in Seoul, if you can, you can know zero Korean and know what to do in any place in Seoul because the signage and the design of the signage is like unbelievably good. And so like at no point will you ever be like, how am I supposed to behave on the subway? Because like even waiting for the subway, there's like little brass feet where you, where you wait. And so like little design elements like that, that type of thing makes me very comfortable. And so to me, the idea of like, hey, I really want to do, and I think too, thinking about training and, and communications in this context, I really want to do the right thing. It makes me very frustrated when it's hard for me to figure that out from the person that's asking me to do something. So right. a great analogy is like taxes, right? So like, I want to pay the right amount of taxes. I don't know why it's so hard to figure out what that is, <laughs> you know, like, why is that so difficult? That's very frustrating to me. Um, and so I think some of it is, I, I think training communications over people like that. So you, you're, you're never going to get people who are like true bad actors or even like a little bit in, like hostile to indifferent to, to pay attention to your stuff. Like you had all the gimmicks in the world, you can add all the junk to click on and videos and whatever. They will figure out a way to avoid it because now we all have these things. And so like, if the, if I don't want to do it, like do something, I can just look at my phone instead. And like let it play and then click it when it tells me I have to click it. Um, so I think stuff is fundamental for people who are willing to go along and want to do the right thing. And so the end game is to make it as simple for them as possible. So there's this minimal friction between their desire to help and their ability to do so. So 
I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are totally nerding out. They're vibing with everything that you're saying. They, <laughs> like, yes, we need to humanize this training. We need to, we're talking about behaviors. We're talking about, uh, you know, efficacy. We're not just talking about efficiency anymore. Yeah. Um, but let's just kind of, as a thought experiment, one of these people is in an organization where they're, or, where they're management, the people who control their budget, whatever. Yeah. Um, they don't see the value in what we're talking about. What kind of talk tracks or what kind of like influence, um, you know, tips would you give to somebody in this role who wants to bring broadcast on, for example, or wants to implement some of these things, but it's going to take a couple of bucks to do it, to yeah. again, turn that light bulb on at the time? Yeah. yeah, so there's always, I mean, maybe let me give you two options on this. So the first option, which is going to sound like a smart ass answer, I don't mean it that way. The first, the first one is leave. And so I actually, I, I do say that's pretty frequently in, in the kind of like stuff I write and talk about is that um, there will be times when you actually are more at an organization where compliance is like a check the box thing. Mm -hmm. If this is a field that you're really passionate about, like I encourage you to leave and find somewhere else. Yep. And so I think people can kind of feel really trapped in these roles and how can I change leadership? Sometimes you just can't and like don't waste your life on something that like, you know, it, where, where they don't really value it. There are other organizations that legitimately do. So that's the first thing I say that always have that that always have kind of the walk away piece in your mind that yeah. if you're somewhere and, and don't exercise it too soon. Like really, I, th I think there's a ton of people need to do to a uh, ton of persuasive things, people and skill sets and toolkits that people can use, but also have that in your mind that like, that's always an option too. Cause it'll just, it'll, I think it's very empowering to think that way. It, it's so, very empowering. And if I can just tag onto that, like yeah. it's empowering. And I think we need to shift our perspective on leaving. It's not a weakness and it's not quitting per se. If you've done what you can and you have a high confidence interval that nothing's going to change here, to your point, why are you going to waste your life? You have gifts to put into, to put into work to make the world better. Go, go to a field where you can really grow. I think that that's, there's a lot of power in that belief and yep. in that dream, you know? And I would also encourage people to take practical steps to make that possible for themselves as well. The first in-house job that I took I was going from a law firm where like, you know, I have many clients and like, I felt pretty comfortable if I don't want to work on someone to go to my boss and say that to like, if you're in house, you have one client, it's a company you work for. Right. And so I remember having this conversation with my wife where it was basically like, okay, so we're going to do this. We're going to move to the Middle East and it's going to be all new. And we're super excited about it. And I really liked the guy I was going to go work for. Um, but at the same time, there's just some element of like, well, this is very different because all my risk is aggregated in one bucket now. And so we just had the agreement that we would arrange our lives so that if I had to quit on no notice, I could. And I never had to threaten that. I, I was very fortunate at both the in-house places I worked that like I had really good leadership. I, they were 100% supportive of compliance. I didn't really ever have to like even raise that. As, I don't know if my bosses even knew that I had that in my back pocket, but I felt very empowered because I did. And knowing that like one, I had, I had uh, my wife and I had already discussed that. We were in a position where if we had to, I could, I was like, I might need to be out of work for a little bit, but I, to be able to do this job well, I really think I need to be able to approach it with like knowing that I can't, I won't have to compromise my integrity. And that means taking some actions beforehand to make sure that would be the case. Have you always been that way? Yeah, kind of. You think, I think so. wired that way? Um, I actually, no, I don't, know, I don't know if I'd say I'd always been that way. I kind of, in my, um, so that would have been, so this is after, so like in my late 20s, I got diagnosed with scrupulosity OCD, which is like a form of OCD where you are like hyper-focused on moral stuff and like the concepts of like, so for me, like I'm a Protestant Christian. So like it was, it was like a lot, it's more common in Catholics than in Protestants, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be with someone who's religious who has it. But like, it's just like this thing where like everything you do, every decision you do, you add these huge black and white and moral components to and it became like really crippling for me. So I, I got through it. And so when I moved overseas, I, that, I, I you know, went to therapy and like learned how to do it. I learned that it's a form of other OCD that probably had my entire life. Um, and so this is like over a decade ago at this point. But like, I remember like going into that, it, what it really helped me to do was like, think about those things very carefully and realize that like, um, one of the ways to make sure like the future version of yourself is going to make the right decision is planning for it now. Um, this is, if you're familiar with like Mary, um, I can't remember how to pronounce her last name, Gentile, I think, um, the, the giving voice to values. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think that's the same concept where it's like, you basically practice, what are you going to do if X happens? And that increases the likelihood that like the thing you do at that time, because the circumstances, it's, it's very easy for us 
sitting here to think about what we're going to do two years from now and be like, wow, that happened. I really have the courage to like do X, Y, Z. I think we're going through that whole thing with OCD. Tommy is like, you know, maybe, but like, if you really think about it seriously, then you realize that context like matters a lot. And like, as you go through things like I, so I basically spent this like 12 month period thinking unbelievably obsessively, like probably eight hours a day about like analyzing everything I did from this moral lens. And so as a result, like I got, you know, a lot of practice and like reps in doing it. And so part of it was just thinking through like, all right, go forward. Um, this is in the rear view. Like, what do I do? And some of it is just like, okay, well, I'm recognizing that I am, I recognizing that um, I'm a, I'm a person and therefore I'm a fallen person. Therefore I can make mistakes and yeah. I can lie to myself when I don't intend to. And I can, I have the capacity to hurt other people, which we all do. These are common to everybody, but it's just the humility to be like, because you recognize those things are true. What are you going to do? What guardrails will you put in so you can be the person you want to be a couple years out? What an interesting path to this. Like it's this very, very cohesive thing. And you said something that really stuck with me as you were talking, as you said, I got a lot of reacts in. And it's yeah. like a muscle. I mean, it really is. Totally, yeah. All the stuff we're talking about and these approaches and these frameworks and being able to keep them sort of somewhat rigid because there's some black and white in the mix, but also yeah. somewhat flexible be, to account for that gray area. Yeah. Getting into that kind of dy dynamic type of a, a mode or movement um, multiple times, I think to your point, probably equips you for the you know, plethora of like situations that you can't even account for, plan for, you don't know what's coming down, down the pike, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's this, and you'll see that when people that are really into like the behavioral sciences, we'll talk about this a lot too, and we might frame it differently depending on what your, your background is, right? But the basic idea is that like, um, we are, everyone wants to think of themselves as a good person. Right. Everybody does. That's the, like a basic premise of like behavioral ethics, but also we are almost infinitely capable of self-deception. Right. And of cutting corners. And so you can either like acknowledge that and say, okay, I'm fallible. What am I going to do to try and increase the likelihood that I'll be the person I want to be? Or you can be like, no, I'm cool. I'm great. And then like, just get surprised when you do something that, and then be in denial about it. So right. I think there's a lot of humility that comes that is necessary. And it makes you a heck of a lot better at the compliance job too. Cause it makes you a lot more able to empathize with people that like, they may be, they think they are doing the right thing. And they want to do the right thing often, but like, it's just, it's actually really hard to one, know what that is and to actually execute it in the moment, given all the pressures. So the more you can help them do that and the more tools you can give them the better. Yeah. And you know, all those things that you were doing or all those ways that you were describing a person, we can obviously describe a company because a company is just sort yes. of a simulation of people and this confirmation bias and this lying to ourselves and thinking we're yeah. people and paying lip service to things can happen at an aggregate company level. And yeah. Difficulty, I think, pops out where, again, it's a bunch of people sort of coming together, but those are all individuals and everyone can sniff out if something's BS and they can sniff out, you know, that cynicism can kind of start to creep in if this thing yeah. is kind of being paid lip service versus the actions following on with it. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting, you know, it just feels like, like we're entering this new phase. Um, you know, we're in a new century. We're, you know, starting a new decade some of these old holdovers from the previous century, which were really kind of rooted back in like the 1890s and maybe even before that, they're still yeah. kind of present right now. And as the work itself has kind of shifted towards more of this knowledge work, all the stuff that you're talking about um, is becoming like so important. And, you know, as you're talking about, man, we just, you know, we do spreadsheet, we do flow charts and we do checklists and some of these things, you know, as you were talking about this, I'm like, man, it's so basic. Wow, that's so... Um, but that's like how all innovations are. Like all the best innovations, you're like, oh, why not, you know, slice bread? That means that someone yeah. just bread. Someone's <laughs> like, oh yeah, why don't you just slice it? It's just, yeah. It seems so interesting, so simple, not to downplay it by any means because there's this efficacy in it that yeah. you don't see and all these other tools that are out there. Why yeah. is, why, you know, we talked a little bit about like, sometimes it's the lawyer thing. Sometimes it's the silo thing. Um, what else do you think contributes to, this like ineffectiveness of mm. programs like why is it why are why is it 2020 and we're only talking about humanizing this stuff like why is it right. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah um so uh, you know some of it might be also like business models have uh, drive this too and so i also will try and talk about like so the way that vendors sell services to people in a field and the way they frame them and what they do about them also i think drives a lot of how how people view and frame what they're doing 
Because um, sometimes, you know, there are some like amazingly innovative people in the in-house space. Um, it's also, however, really easy for you if you're in-house to look at what a vendor is doing and be like, oh, that's what we should be doing. Well, not necessarily. A vendor might be doing it because it's, it's a really good business model that makes a ton of money. It may actually not be the optimal thing. And so for like, for example, part of the reason that I think, you know, our stuff is, <laughs> right, it is very simple. It's extremely difficult to make, but it's simple to use. And once it's in place, right. it's very simple. It also is like a lot cheaper than doing like traditional compliancy learning. And so I think that's another piece of it is like, so, um, so that, that's the innovator's dilemma, right? So the innovator's dilemma if, uh, is like, the, it, so the classic example is Kodak, right? Where it's like Kodak had digital camera technology. Um, so it's not really that they got unseated because of that. They got unseated because they're making too much money on the old school stuff, on film. And so that's the innovator's dilemma is like, usually it's not as if the concept is like, sometimes the concepts really come out of left field, but like, I'm not the person that, I, I didn't like invent checklists. Like I told Gawande that, uh, he's just someone in the government now, but he was like, I think one of the top surgeons at UMass or Mass General, some, somewhere up, up north, um, has this book, The Checklist Manifesto, and yeah, yeah. talks about applying it in, in the context of like uh, surgical operations, right? And it's very simple. It's one page and they had this like insane reduction in like surgical errors as a result of implementing it. Yeah. And so like the concept, and, and the concept of checklist is also how the military does like everything. Right. Like, you know, you can, you can pilot a plane and repair a submarine with checklists. So the idea that you couldn't manage bribery risk with that is like ridiculous, but you also will, um, it is a lot better to sell people like a, a anti-corruption e-learning course forever that never actually solves the problem. And so right. that's a piece of it too, is that I think you have this innovator's dilemma of, well, why would you do this thing that I'll sell you the checklist once you can go edit it for your, your sales team and use it forever. And that might actually fix the problem, um, but there's some element to where the kind of like endless nature of the like course-based uh, like compliance approach um, is more attractive as a business proposition. And then you mimic that as an in-house team, even if you're doing entirely in-house, to oh, that must be what we're doing because that's what people are selling. Not necessarily. Right? It may just be something that's a, a really good long-term business model right. um, because it has endless, it's government mandating demand and you can never really be done. Yeah, it's kind of like that thing uh, with Goodyear that they can make tires that would last forever, but then how are you going to sell new tires to, to folks? It's that kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I think you and I kind of resonate a lot um, with each other on this. It, there's a certain, like, irony in this whole game that we're in where you have some people, to your point, who are yeah, yeah. selling compliance ethics stuff that's not actually solving a problem. It's really solving uh, fill-my-pockets-up problem. Sure. How do we sort, like, I'm not going to be throwing stones at folks. I don't really care. Like, it'll all right. work out in yeah. the but Like, how, you know, again, somebody who's on the other side, who's not in-house or the part of the compliance team, how do they sort through that stuff? Because, look, you're going to, you know, how, and how do you not fall into the uh, everybody buys IBM trap? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, the first thing to say is, like, I don't think that most vendors are selling stuff cynically like that. I think some, some might, for sure. But like, I think generally is like, they're like, oh, we think this is, is, is working. There might be some incentives in the background. Like there's probably, there, and there indeed might be a disconnect between the people that make it and the people that are like ultimately the equity holders too. Yeah. So I want to give some grace there in the sense of like, I don't want to say that like everyone's doing this for like nefarious mouth. I don't think that's the case. Okay. Um, I do think that like, there is this belief that like, oh, um, you know, if it's the IBM thing. So the IBM piece is like, okay, so if we, you're not going to get fired for buying IBM. Um, so I don't know that that's actually true for in this case. So for example, like, I think there's this belief that like the real end game here is like, we're going to have a big investigation and then the government's going to come in and say like, great job. You spent a jillion dollars on compliance. Therefore you're not going to get a penalty. So that is, uh, I think a pretty myopic view of how these things actually play out because I think what will actually play out is that like, okay, compliance team is going to focus on like, we don't think this stuff works, but we need to buy IBM. And so we're going to do this overkill program. And as a result, what's going to happen, and we have a failure and the government comes in. Well, the time lapse between the government coming in and that finding of like, hey, you did a great job, could be a decade. And that could be like, depending on what the, the issue is, like could be a period of months, it could be a decade. If it's like an antitrust suit, it could be an extremely long time. They're like notoriously long to litigate. Right. And so the transaction and what people I think don't think about is a transaction cost. Cause if you're a board member 
or if you're a C-suite member and you're starting to see your transaction costs of like outside council fees start ticking up into like the eight figures on an annual basis, you're like, what the fudge was the compliance team doing? Like, why are we dealing, like, why didn't they prevent this from happening? And it's kind of be kind of game over for you anyway. So I think there's this false confidence that, and again, so it's thinking about liability versus like, right, but the liability is so far in the future. The question that people are going to ask is like, right now we're spending so much on this. Could this have been prevented? That's going to come up. And then they're going to say, we need different compliance people on board that have a different approach because clearly the one they were doing didn't work. The getting out of the government fine is kind of like a given or like that, that's, that's not, that can't be the end game. Right. The point is like making sure that you're not like basically bleeding cash to outside counsel in the interim. Like these, like I used to do these investigations. They're like unbelievably expensive and disruptive. Right. And so even if it comes out good for you, you're still out like tens of millions of dollars. And yeah. so focusing on leaner stuff that you think will prevent it is the way to go. Yeah. Um, you know, just to kind of get back to your, to your fire analogy, at that point, you're kind of just hoping that the insurance policy kicks in. So you don't pay yeah. fine, but the house is already burned down. You've already spent tens of millions of dollars over a decade, you know, investigating this thing or litigating. Yeah. I mean, you're never, like, if you come home and you find out the babysitter let the house burn down, you're not like psyched that they also made sure the insurance was up to date. You're mad that you're mad the house burned down. You know, it's like, it's, I think the transactions cost piece to this is like so key um, Mike Kohler is like the FCPA presser guy has an article on this just kind of like he talks about this in FCPA context all the time but just I mean generally the, co the concept is transaction costs which are just like a fundamental part of law and economics and it's just like it costs stuff it costs money to do stuff and so it costs money to gear up outside counsel for things it costs a huge amount of money to do that I mean the I mean if you're like you're talking about like several a big law firm like several hundred dollars for someone with no experience per hour that's right. like one, like zero, like, like one month out of law school. Putting tabs and folders, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, it, totally. And so it's like the idea that it's like, okay, what matters is this point in the future. Like don't, and when people think about that, that's also where it makes it very hard for them to measure the output of their results because they're locked on to liability versus like behavior. Yes. Yeah. And the behavior comes before the liability to your point. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I probably look at it a little bit different, different than you do with respect to these uh, these other actors out there. And I appreciate you giving grace to those actual operators in those four walls. Just yeah. in my, my, my experience really on kind of both sides of the fence, I've seen that like when the ship gets sold, it has a new captain, ir irrespective of what the people on the deck want to do. Very fair. So like yeah. those incentive, that incentive overlay on that asset set or that operational set, it yeah. just ends up influencing things because the guy at the top gets comped on equity value growth and how do I grow the value? Yeah. Like, okay, well, then I'm going to stretch out, you know, I'm going to forego my maintenance on my courses. So for example, uh, yeah. next year I can, you know, skip that cost. All that's going to drop to my bottom line. I put enough, I put a multiple on that and that's going to put my kids through Dartmouth, you know, no offense to yeah. Dartmouth, of course. It's just a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, look, there's, there's a reason why the multiples for compliance businesses are so high. That's right. Because it is government mandated demand. And it, there's also this belief that you can basically sell the same thing forever right. because there's government mandate demand. And that is why the valuation multiple is like so high, even like compared to like compared to other, I mean, you compare that to like a services, like a legal services firm, it's like crazy high crazy. and like that there's, there's a reason why for, for that. And so, you know, I think there is some part to it where like, I, I actually view compliance as like, my view is that it is a series of problems to be solved and right. that like you can actually solve them and move on to something else. Right there's an alternate view that it is a practice that you continually do. And so I think the difference is like the latter view, the, the practice view is like, that's where you have compliance programs that always stay at a surface level. And they're, they're really focused on like branding and like high level comms. And so they redo their code like every three years, even if the risk assessment doesn't require it, which right. I don't think is a good practice because if your code really is this like foundational values document, don't rewrite it every three years. That's very confusing to people. Um, and they stay at that very high level of like all employee type training, like high level code of conduct stuff, but they never get down to like, all right, what does it mean for our high risk people? Like, what do you, what do you really need to tell? Like, what do you really need to tell the, the sales team what to do? What do you need to tell the R and D team what to do so that you actually prevent this stuff from happening? Yeah. And it's this, so you're kind of describing this thing that I think you referenced earlier where like compliance turns into like murder. 
right? And it's all about appearance and it's all about branding and, hey, we yeah. need to appear to be a compliant organization. And I think that's kind of rooted in this assumption that appearance is reality, which is true in some, some areas. But I yeah. think people who take this approach, to your point, kind of get it backwards because appearance is reality, not with respect to how the employee views how the organization, you know, looks at compliance. Appearance is reality with respect to the incident that's popping off. And is that going, is that, you know, is that appearance going to be a reality of this is something I need to speak up about? Like, you know, effective, effective tools in place that are going to drive behaviors are to your point, 10 X more important than having, you know, the, the latest graphics or the latest sort of font set cascading across yeah. our, our code. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the appearance point, I think, is really apt to. I mean, I think when you, th- when you think, like, the, the talking point, for example, that ethical companies make more money. Um, you, you hear that talking point bandied about quite a bit. So the first part of that, and, like, I you know if, if Martin is listening to this from uh, the Netherlands, like, he, he'd make this point. Um, which is that like, well, first, what's ethics? Like what's ethical mean? So, but let's assume that everyone agrees on that. The challenge is that like the only thing that markets and shareholders can really value a company on is what they know about. And so what they, so it's, I don't think it's appropriate to say that like more ethical companies make more money. It's probably more appropriate to say companies that perform ethics better make more money. They may also actually genuinely be very ethical, but there's inherently this piece like you can only value what you know about. And Got so it. like companies that like, uh, might be doing it, but aren't like spending all the time to market it. Then that's a might be missed opportunity for them. But at the Got same it. time, like you know, the shareholders can't, the market can't value what it doesn't know about. It can through like complex signals and blah blah blah. That's probably too in the weeds for for this. But I think you know, I, I do think the appearance piece is like, I, I think branding matters. I think like your stuff should look good. Like absolutely. But I think that like fundamentally, um, we, but you can also get that stuff backwards. So. Um, whenever we talk about like uh, talking to someone in the sales process, or if it's like a custom customer, we're talking about it. Um, you want to f- don't focus on things like engagement. Don't focus on things like look and feel focus on usability. All of those things, aesthetics, balance, all the things about graphic design. I've got four designers on team. They're amazing. And like the, and the, the part of the reason that they work for me and that they're amazing. What they do is they view it as a tool. So like it's a tool to solve a problem of usability. And so like a lot of times you see these things where it's just like, it's decorated for the sake of being decorated. It's not designed. And so you'll see this in codes of, codes of conduct are like a notorious example of this where you, it's like, I used the thing on LinkedIn the other day where it was like, they look like restaurant websites circa 2005, right? So yeah. you go to it and it's like, there's this video and like music playing, like it's a MySpace page. And you're like, but you can't find the menu or the hours of when it's open. Right. And you get these codes of conduct that are really similar where there's so much multimedia that no one asks for. It but doesn't tell you how to do anything. Or how, it doesn't link you to anything useful. Or you have to like go in behind a firewall to access it, access like the next level down of content. I mean, it's, just, it's, 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 a, it's an approach that focuses on decorating it and aesthetics over usability. Those things are important. Aesthetics matter. Like people respond to beautiful things but only after if it's first solving a problem for them. That's right. That's right. Um, the, you know, something that I just kind of kept coming back to as I've kind of gotten to know you and obviously through this conversation is like, you're obviously passionate about fixing a problem. You obviously see, man, if I can do this, we can make an impact on the world. We can make the world a better workplace. We can make, you know, things better. And I think there's a lot of people in our field that are wired that way. Like, I don't think anybody is picking should I go into ethics and compliance or investment banking? I don't think that's in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because there are yeah. different roles and there are different outcomes in those and there's different yeah. impact paths in those different routes, right? Um, yeah. And I guess just one last thing on this, the, this ownership factor, because I think it's a kind of a, you know, pardon the pun, but kind of like a pandemic or kind of an epidemic in our oh. industry. Um, like these, these people who are bidding up the multiples of companies in our space, yeah. They're not doing it because they're like, man, the name of the game is ethics and I want to make the world a better place. They're like, wow, these are resilient businesses. I didn't underwrite COVID risk properly. So right. wow, these are way more attractive than, than I thought. And there's money pouring into it. It's, yeah. there's no like uh, noble, you know, drive behind it. Other than <laughs> you know, if there's no, if, if, if nobility can be sort of bought by a bigger bank account, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I guess. So, so, I mean, you want to talk about more moral hazard there's moral hazard built into our industry in several yes. ways. And the people with the power 
what are they going to do? They're going to lean into whatever their God is, which in this case is money. Whereas, you know, yeah. maybe it's making the world better or whatever those, those things are. How do we reconcile that not only as service providers, but on the other side of the fence, the people who are in-house, how do they see, see through that stuff? Yeah, good question. So I think, you know, as a service provider, one way you might reframe it is a feature and not a bug. And so like, there's a reason why you see this heavy M&A cycle in compliance is that like, you're right. I think private equity firms and financial acquirers in particular, they're going to buy a compliance business because they're viewed as an annuity. Like we're going to get grow 10% forever. And so fine. And that, that's why you see a heavy M&A cycle because innovation can't come from a business held to those, held to those metrics. Correct. And so instead what you do Great is you point. see there's always, an, there's always an opportunity if you're listening to this and you're in-house or you've been displaced, there's always an opportunity to start a compliance business because the incumbent player, if you're ever like, why aren't the big people doing this stuff? It's, they may be hamstrung by their financing model that they can't. They can't take big risks. They can't do something that 10 years from now might be like wildly transformative and make tons of money, but in the interim will be destructive of short-term revenue because right. that's just not their ownership model. And so I think part of it, so part of the service provider side is like, I try and view that as a feature, not a bug, where like it just creates opportunity for me. That it's like, there's a reason why no one has tried to knock off what we do because like it, their, their business models actually prevent them from doing so. Right. So that's the first piece. I think at, if you're on the in-house side, I mean, I think part of it too is, and I, I did this very poorly when I was, when I was at house. So I think it is, is having a really, a, a mindset about like trying to find solutions and, and trying to find outside providers. I was terrible at this when I was in house. So like, I, whenever we talk about like inbound marketing, which is when someone contacts you as a service provider, right? Like um, whenever we talk about that at a company, I always give you an example of like, I wouldn't have ever found our website because I never looked for stuff because I just assumed it all was terrible. And like it, and, and, and to be fair, like if you're, if you Google whatever and you go to like the first 10 pages of content, you're probably going to be like someone that's hired a copywriter to generate a lot of like very generic stuff. Right. So you may have to dig a little bit to find the stuff you're looking for, but there's absolutely a whole bunch of great providers out there that do good work in the space. And there's more all the time because new people enter the space. Um, the thing I would tell you though, is like be like recognize that like the goal for you is not to do everything yourself. I also absolutely had that mentality. That is a very dangerous mentality to have. If your goal is, cause like as a bit, as now the CEO of this company, that is the last thing way I want my people thinking. I do not want them thinking that cause like employees are expensive, you know? Yeah. And so like, I want them doing the thing I hired them to do, which is their highest value. Right. And if there's something that can be outsourced, like I am very amenable to that. And so we use an unbelievable amount of software and we use contractors that we really rely on that do good work for some things that aren't like mission critical for us. I want my team doing the things that are very unique to them. And so a good example of this would be if you, if you feel like you end up spending, I'll use my own space. If you end up spending a lot of time sitting behind your desk, creating content or like managing a spreadsheet Yep. And that's time you could be spending going out because you had a hotline tool or you had something like what we do to get, provide content to you. Like, I think that's a huge missed opportunity because ultimately what's going to make you resilient um, in a downturn as a compliance team player is the business people know who you are and like you. Right. And what's going to make you effective is exactly the same thing because where you add unique value as an in-house compliance team is doing the stuff that a vendor can't do. If your value prop to your company is that like you're like a vendor but cheaper, what you're probably not to start off with. You might right. think you are, but when you start adding in like all the overhead and costs and opportunity costs, it's it's amazing how expensive you are as an employee without thinking about it. I had no concept of this at all when I was in-house. As soon as I started running a PNL, I was like, whoa, that is totally backwards. And I was embarrassed about it. Like I was so embarrassed about how much time I would spend doing stuff and then feel really proud because like I did it myself, I didn't spend any money. Well, I definitely did. Spent a lot of money. I spent a lot of money. It was my salary. Yeah. And it, I could have been spending that on other stuff too. And so I think that is something that like as a team to be comfortable knowing like one, and, and it's, there's very small teams that are amazing at this. There's very big teams that are amazing at this and, and vice versa for both. So it's not necessarily a function of size. It is just a mentality that it's like thinking like a little business unit. Think of your compliance team as a, a little business, a small business within your big business and part of that is like, don't do everything yourself. Try to figure out there. I promise you there are a ton of providers out there ranging very big ones and very small ones. Some of them are ex-in-house people. Some of them are just really smart people who've entered the field, uh, but you can find them. 
um, and work with them and have conversations with them and figure out like, hey, what, what do you do? And then you'll have a very good sense as well as like um, how you can leverage your personal time for highest impact. Um, I think that any time you spend behind your desk instead of being out with and from employees is a real challenging thing. I wish I'd been better at that when I was in-house myself. I just, I mean, it, it's something that you learn immediately as soon as you're on the business side, and then you realize that's how business people think about everybody. Yeah. And that is not something you get on, on the compliance side or may not get on that side. And then you look back at kind of the missed opportunities you had to make those connections and build those relationships. Yeah. And, you know, I just love that. I love what you just said. You said, think of yourself as a little business unit. Think of yourself as a mini business and just yeah. incorporating that framework of just dividing your salary by 2000. That's about how many hours are in a 40 hour week and start, just start looking at how much time did I spend on the spreadsheet? How much time did I spend writing this thing? And start yeah. to get that across because there's a lot of leverage and there's a lot of leakage in our day-to-day -day activities that we can be having a bigger impact and helping to you know, accelerate those light bulbs turning on. You'll also be more valuable the more that you think about solving different problems each year than this is what I do. So the, yes. if you use the spreadsheet as an example, if you are managing a hotline spreadsheet because that's what you do and that takes like five hours a week to do for you, that is five, like the idea is figure out a way to solve that so that now it's like 10, 10 minutes a week. And then you have four hours and change that you can go to do something else that's more valuable for the company. That's how you get promoted. So just doing the same thing over time doesn't get you promoted. Figuring out a way, a system to solve something and developing a process or working with a software provider or a vendor or whatever to solve it and move on. Right. That is, that, that's how people build businesses. That's what we are constantly doing on the commercial side of our business. Right. How do you solve this problem and move on I don't want someone doing the same thing day in, day out, unless it truly requires their skill set to do something like, and a lot of the things that we get can get bogged down in compliance because we lack the tools to do it are exactly that. Correct. And, you know, to your point, like patting ourselves on the back because we've been working so hard, bailing water out of a boat for the last yeah. three years, when yeah. we could have just fixed the hole in the boat, let's kind of yes. work smart here. You know what I mean? So totally. We're moving into this, um, we're moving into this, this new phase. We're moving into this new era. We're moving from this compliance 2.0 to 3.0, where it's about not about efficiency and technology. It's about, you know, effectiveness, changing behaviors and so forth. You went through a similar type of metamorphosis yourself, right? As you went from in-house to starting your own business and taking yeah. the plunge and doing that stuff. What, you know, now that you're on the other side of this thing, in a sense, you've actualized in some ways that you didn't, you know, have before. What advice would you give to the compliance people who are, you know, consciously or subconsciously, explicitly or implicitly starting to feel this squeeze to get over this fear of uh, obsolescence or get over this yeah. fear of like doing something that I'm not comfortable doing to reach across the aisle and solve a problem or shift, sure. shift, shift away from the false sense of security that comes from me managing the spreadsheet 10 hours a week to solving a new problem that I haven't solved before, right? Like there's anxiety in there. What yeah. advice would you give or what frames can you give to somebody listening? Yeah. So the biggest one would be to do fewer things better. Okay. Um, I think where you can get real sideways on a compliance program, especially if you view yourself as understaffed, under-resourced, which like almost everyone does, not everyone, but a lot of people do. Um, the trap you can fall in is trying to, is having like um, a real crappy program that covers all the bases. Right. Um, and, and you will never get more budget if that's what you do, because you'll have all these things you're doing. None of them really work. None of them really solve problems business doesn't really understand any of them and you ask for more money and then you spread it out all really thin over and over again. So I would tell you to do fewer things better and have, and have like a real prototype approach. So an analogy that we use to explain this is like, um, so imagine that, the, imagine that your goal as a compliance team is to like cross the Atlantic. So like, or let's, let's cross the Hudson, let's do a river, right? Okay. And so um, uh, the goal, the way to do, and you have limited resources. So you're, the way you do that is you build like a really good rowboat and then like you cross it and then you go back like, look at the people I brought, give me more money for a better boat. What you don't do is build a really leaky battleship and then say, and like, and it sinks halfway through. Right. And that's the trap you can fall into because you think I only have limited resources. I have to do everything 10%. No, like really pare back what you were doing, like, and use, this is based on your risk assessment, pare back what you're doing into like two or three things you're going to do that year and then build in time to market them. And like, that's how you get budget to do the other things. And, but where I see people that are like, they have had the same program for years, same team, same budget. Um, and, and often you might just even go down over time. 
Um, that's, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to do too much with too little. Um, you just be vocal. Like, this is what I can do with this amount of resources. If you're a compliance officer of one, the idea that you're going to, and you're a, a organization with serious risk, there's no way, no way you're going to be able to do a whole bunch of stuff. And so, and if you do, it'll all be so poor. Um, not because you're not trying hard, but just because like, you know, you, you're not magic. You can't do it with like no resources. Um, that it'll be, you'll never be able to make a business case for more. So focus on zero in on like the two or three things you can do in any given year, do them extremely well, and then say, this is what I did with the resources you gave me. Give me more and I can do this thing as well. Yeah, if I you try and do everything, it'll never happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm kind of catching up to you, but I was just, you know, kind of putting some of this together. But the reason I think, and tell me what you think. I think that why these programs get spread so thin and it's this, you know, this massive bouquet of wilting flowers or whatever you want to call it, sure. because, you know, many times people coming into this game are, they kind of view this, they kind of take this black and white view to, to the world. And again, I'm painting in broad brushstrokes, but like this kind of binary thing, well, is it right or is it wrong? Or is this legal or is it not? Um, and that's coupled many times with something that you said earlier, where it's really about delivering the, in, the information. Okay, my liability is, e is erased. I deliver yeah. it. It's up to them to kind of take it. So this last mile, there's no, you know, there's no connection point over this last mile. And I think something, maybe you posted this a while ago, but like the name of the game is not risk elimination. The name of the game is risk mitigation and yeah. calculated risk, right? Taking these calculated risks. So, um, I think kind of taking that kind of 80-20 kind of Pareto approach to actually problem solving and knowing and just understanding that like this ocean floor is, or, you know, this ocean surface is always going to be undulating with risk. Like we're always going to be yeah. dealing with that. What, what's the biggest risk I can take out right now? And how can I actually, you know, plug the hull of that, of that ship? Yeah. yeah, totally. I mean, you come into one of these roles as a lawyer, especially if you're a compliance team of one and had no compliance team. I would say 99 times out of 100, if not 100, you're a lawyer that gets put in that role, right? right? And so you are, your training tells you to, your goal is to eliminate liability. And so that's what you're going to do. That's 100% what I would do if I had been in that position. 100%. I never went to a team that, you know, didn't already have a leader. So I wasn't, I've never been in that position, but I promise you that's what I would have done. I would have done the exact same thing I'm telling. So I, please understand when I say this. I'm coming from some humility that like, I'm telling you not to do this because that's 100% the risk I see it. I would have done. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's exactly it. So you go in and you're like, all right, so I need to eliminate liability, drive it to zero. So I'm going to try and do all these things. And then you're like, okay, well, I guess compliance is done now. And then <laughs> stuff happens. And, so you, and then you do tend to see this too. If you watch compliance programs over time, they bring this person on board, they do that thing, and then they have an issue and that person gets shown the door. And then they bring someone else to like set up like now a real program. Then you'll have a call with that person. They'll be like, well, the old person just wrote like all these really long policies. And that's what they thought. They thought that was the right thing to do. Right. And I, I would have thought, you know, I, I think I probably would have done the same thing. If, if, if my first in-house job had been just like setting up a program without coming from an investigations background. Right. Um, I was fortunate to work for like a super seasoned leader right away that actually from General Electric that was able to walk through. This is how actually programs are supposed to work. But I think that's a big driver of it is you come in and you're, you're just trying to like do everything because that's what you think the thing is. Um, and you're also just very uncomfortable with risk. I think as attorneys, we're like trained to be very uncomfortable with risk because in our world, risk is like catastrophic, always catastrophic. Totally. Legal liability is catastrophic. If there's, and you're, that's why we're always caveating things too, because we also want to avoid malpractice risk, which right. is enormously risky for us. And so like, those are the things that like, I think, you know, coming from that background, that's what you see with a lot of first compliance officers of coming from that background where they really struggle and they never able to really grow the program beyond that. And sometimes they don't want to, sometimes they think, whatever, I don't know why compliance teams need 80 people. I did this like in one year, just by writing all these policies, you know, crushed it. Right. So it, it, there's also some piece of that where like, you know, not everyone always wants to do build it beyond that. But when you do that, that's, that's where you can really struggle is you try to, you tried you framed the problem as avoiding liability. The company was like, great, avoiding liability. You wrote a whole bunch of paperwork. And then and now you're asking for more money because you realize there's more stuff. And they're like, whoa, 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 what? Like right. you're moving the goalposts on us now. Right. Um, well, this has been great, man. I appreciate you coming on here and being so you know, generous with your input and your uh, perspective. Where can people find you, Ricardo? Yep, so I'm on LinkedIn under my name. Um, and you can go see what we do at Broadcat at compliancedesignclub.com. 
Uh, to our product site, you'll see videos of me there. Uh, you'll also find those generally on the Broadcat site, uh, which is thebroadcat.com. Cool. Well, I love what you're doing. I love uh, the ethos that you bring to this game. I love uh, the impact that you're making in the market. And um, yeah, just appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your wisdom with us. Thank you for having me.